As we continue in an attitude of worship, I'd like to just bring to mind that our sermon this morning has to do with change. And all the changes we go through here in this world point toward the ultimate change that we will experience as we stand before Christ in glory. Paul had this in mind when he wrote at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians these words in chapter 15, verses 51 through 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body may put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5? We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 39. Let me just tell you, we have seasons in life. We go through changes. We're not always aware of the change when it occurs. Frequently, we have to look back upon it uh, to appreciate the magnitude of the change that we've gone through. Kelly and I went through one of those when I came on staff here at the church. I came on as an intern. And shortly after I came on as an intern, uh, we had some crisis in the church, and all of a sudden, I was standing in the pulpit. And uh, I hadn't expected to be there. I know the congregation didn't expect me to be there. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, this guy that was sitting with them was up there and preaching on Sunday morning, and it took some time for that to sink in exactly what was going on. And it wasn't until after we had gone through some of that transformation that we came to a full realization of how completely our lives had changed. And, uh, and it, actually, how completely the, the, the church had changed as well. So uh, as we analyze that and realize that God was moving in an incredible fashion, it makes me wonder what's happening right now. What sort of changes are we going through that we will look back upon and realize that God was moving powerfully? And how long will it take for us to realize what was happening and will we appreciate it? And so, you know, the big question we all have right now, when are things going to get back to normal? Uh, well, I think we need to ask some other questions as well. What does normal look like? Is normal going to be what it was before? Because I believe that the landscape is shifting beneath our feet right now. And so I've been praying that the Lord would open our eyes, give us discernment to see what changes are occurring uh, as we try to get back to a normal life. What does that look like? And what changes that we're going through right now will we embrace and carry with us as we go forward, I, I believe with all my heart that as we look back on this series, uh, this season in our lives, this season, this era in the world, uh, that we will go, everything changed at that moment. So our sermon title today is, Are We Changing? And this is part 11 of our ongoing series in Luke, uh, God's Love for Everyone. And let me just give you the answer to that real quick. Yes. Yes, we are changing. And the ramifications of what we're going through right now are far-reaching. There's never been a time when the whole world has held its breath 
and tried to figure out what's going on. So this is a global event that we're going through. And we will get back to reuniting. We will get back to meeting in person. But I, I think there are a lot of folks out there that think that the governor or the president or somebody's going to throw some switch and that we're all going to be able to come back together at, like that. Brothers and sisters, that's not the way it's going to happen. Uh, it, it will be quite some time. It might be five weeks. It might be eight weeks. It, it, it might be longer than that before we're able to gather in this room again. And as much as I look forward to that, um, I, I have to have a, a, a caution in my heart, and I hope you have one as well, that this reforming, that regathering is going to be a process, not an event. And it's going to take a lot of patience and a lot of cooperation amongst ourselves for this to happen at the very best. If we were to gather in this room today, uh, we would have to be six feet apart and practice social distancing. Uh, we've already started mapping that out. And I, the sanctuary, uh, if we're going to observe the guidelines we've been given, will hold 29 people. So uh, this is a very complicated issue about how we reassemble. And, uh, and again, I just want to emphasize it's going to take a lot of patience, a lot of cooperation, maybe, maybe some discomfort as well. So uh, are, are we changing? Yes, we're changing. Will things go back? Yes, they'll go back to a form of what they were before, but it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, it's going to take a lot of discipline. And we're going to have to look back on this and learn what we're supposed to be learning right now. If we, if, if we don't learn it now, we're going to have to learn it as we go forward. So um, that brings us back to Luke. And the first four chapters of Luke were the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the birth uh, John the Baptist and everything, but in particular, uh, verses uh, chapters 3 and 4 were about Jesus beginning his ministry and establishing his credentials as the Messiah. Uh, so he's revealing himself to the people around him. Um, and part of that revelation is the working of signs and wonders. There are stupendous things going on here. Uh, they're valid. We need to understand that uh, the Lord moves in ways that are supernatural at times. Other times he doesn't, but there are times that he moves supernaturally. Uh, he's performing these signs and wonders. He's teaching with incredible authority. Uh, people are beginning to realize that there's something different about uh, this man who claims to be um, the Lord. Uh, it, he's just kind of rolling this out slowly. And, and now, starting in chapter 5, we're going to see the impact that Jesus has on the people around him. And, we're, and this passage is all about change. It's all about transformation. In verses 1 through 11, we will see Peter change. In verses 12 through 16, we will see a leper change. In verses 17 through 26, there's a transformation to a paralytic, somebody who, what we would call today, a quadriplegic. Uh, in verses 27 through 32, a man named Levi changes. And in 33 through 39, we see that everybody that comes into an intimate personal contact with Jesus goes through some sort of transformation. So I want to take a look at Peter first in verses 1 through 11. Luke 5, chapter 1, verse 1 says this. On one occasion... 
while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So Jesus is teaching to a crowd. Um, they're enthralled with what he's doing, but off, off to the side are these fishermen. They're at the end of their day. They brought their boats in. They're not really involved in the teaching. Maybe they can hear something that's going on, maybe not. Uh, but their job is to uh, rearrange their nets, set their boats up for the next day. They're, they're, they're not involved in the teaching. And so in verse 3, it says, getting into one of the boats, Jesus gets into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, this is interesting because he just walks over to Simon, Peter, and climbs in his boat and says, take me out in the water. Now, th this location is called the Sower's Cove. I've got a picture of it here. Uh, I was there in 2016. And if you take a look at the picture and the landscape surrounding that little cove there, it's a natural amphitheater. Uh, so as Jesus begins addressing this large crowd, they're in the amphitheater, and he's standing down in the bottom of the bowl. So there's an acoustic there that would enable Jesus to be heard by all the people in, in, in the amphitheater. And, and he's standing in Peter's boat. And in verse 4 it says, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now you can almost hear Simon going, He's at the end of his day. He's been out fishing. He doesn't have anything. He tells the Lord. He says in verse 5, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, Peter is an experienced fisherman. He knows how to do this. He's been out for an incredibly long period of time, and they've come back with no fish. He knows where to find the fish. He knows how to get them in the net. He knows how to get them in the boat. They've come home empty. And it, probably a little bit disappointed, but not terribly. He knows there will be another day. And Jesus is now going to tell Peter how to fish. But Peter senses that there's something going on. Maybe he's seen the crowd listening to Jesus. Uh, maybe there's something in Jesus' presence. It's really not explained. And he says, okay, uh, by your word, you tell me to let down the nets. I'll let down the nets. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in verse 7 in the other boat to come and help them. There were so many fish they needed help. These experienced fishermen caught nothing, and Jesus in one move needs two boats of people to get the fish up out of the water. And they came, came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. This is an abundance that was unheard of. These boats were made for this sort of thing, uh, but not that many fish. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, from a sinful man, O Lord. Now, Peter's reaction to whatever was happening, he recognizes some level of righteousness in Jesus Christ, some level of holiness. Peter sees that something very unusual has gone on. He can't explain this. In all of his years as a fisherman, he's never seen a catch like this. He spent the whole night out there before and been able to catch anything, and it humbles Peter. 
And he goes down on his knees and he recognizes his own sinfulness. Now, this is a blessing. Peter recognizes his need for redemption. But it scares him. And he literally said, he's not saying get out of here, but he's saying, I really have no business in the presence of somebody like you. Depart from me. I'm soiled. I'm pitiful. I just, I, I, I don't understand what's going on and I can't take it. In verse 9, for he and all who were with him, Peter and all who were with him, were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. They're overwhelmed with something seemingly supernatural. Verse 10, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee. We'll hear those names as we go forward, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, now this is Jesus' response to Peter, who says, depart from me, I'm not worthy of being in your presence. He says, do not be afraid. Oh, we hear that so often. Peter recognizes the overwhelming nature of what's happening and can't handle it at this particular point. And Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Now, I don't know what Peter thought of that. But again, these are fishermen in Galilee. Um, they may have been thinking, what are you talking about? Are we going to go next time we go out on the lake? Is our net going to be full of men? Will they be alive when we bring it? Uh, you know, they're thinking in real world terms. And Jesus is speaking eternally. They don't realize it yet, but he's giving them a vision for the rest of their lives, for their future. And so we can ponder that. But what we can get from this is that uh, the one solid fact we have is that Jesus says to Peter, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving you. There's going to be a change coming in your life, and I'm going to be with you as you go through it. So Jesus is not leaving. Peter is changing. In verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Again, we need to consider exactly what's happening here. These men are fishermen. They are probably third, fourth, fifth, maybe tenth, twelfth generation fishermen. Their life was on the water in the Sea of Galilee. All their livelihood came from what they caught every night during their fishing period. That's all they knew. They had the equipment. Their life was focused upon what they did. And Jesus has had such an incredible impact on these men. They walk away from it all. They just leave all the boats, the equipment, everything, and just begin to follow him. And Peter's life changes radically. He leaves his boat and tackle behind. And now, now he's got to find a new way to live. He knows he's going to follow Jesus, but he doesn't know how this is going to work out. And so, and so this is why Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. I'll be with you. You're going to learn a new way to fish. So this personal encounter that Peter has with Jesus Christ brings change. And so, and, 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 and don't miss this, the change in Peter's life occurs so that he will become a fisher of men. Now, there's an echo of the gospel in that. I don't think they understood it at that particular time. We do. 
but the change in Peter occurs not necessarily for Peter's benefit, but for the sake of the gospel. So that's why Peter's life changed. Let's take a look at another change, uh, one that happens to a leper in verses 12 through 16. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, we have an idea what leprosy is, um, but it's defined in uh, Leviticus 13. If you take a look at, at that chapter in Leviticus, you'll find out that a variety of skin diseases is described there. So we're not exactly sure what he had. We do know that it was communicable, um, that it was ugly, and that uh, in order to be diagnosed and with any hope at all of getting better, the one who had this leprosy had to go to a priest. Now, that's a, an integral part of this story. So the priest had to examine them. The priest would determine whether or not they were leprous. And if they were, then they would be isolated. Um, they would go through all their clothing. They would go through their home. Um, they would burn the clothing. They would tear the house down if they had to. And so there was a procedure that they had to go through that if it was effective, uh, the leper would then go back to the priest to be examined. And once the priest examined him and determined that he had been healed, then he could reintegrate into uh, his culture. Prior to that, he wasn't allowed in the city. Uh, if anybody came near him, uh, he was ob obliged to proclaim, unclean, unclean. So everybody knew they were supposed to stay away. It was the first version of social distancing. And so uh, this leper is going through that. He has been examined by a priest. It has been determined that he is unclean. So nobody's allowed to come in contact with him. Nobody's allowed to touch him. If they touch him, they have to go through a procedure to, to cleanse himself. They have to be inspected by the priest to make sure that they're not infected. So the leper shows up while Jesus is in this city. And when he saw Jesus, the second half of verse 12, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Don't know where this man's trust in the Lord came from, but it's there. And in verse 13, something astonishing happens. Now remember, this man is unclean. And anybody who touches him gets infected to the point to where they have to be examined by a priest. And in verse 13, it says, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And as he does that, he says, I will be clean and immediately the leprosy left him and he charged him verse 14 to tell no one but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded that happens in Leviticus 14 for a proof to them so watch what happens here first Everything that they knew, everything that they had been taught, told them that if the clean Jesus touches the leper, that Jesus will become contaminated, that he will become soiled, that he will become unclean. But Jesus, in the middle of proving himself to who he is, in the middle of establishing his credentials, when he touches the leper, instead of him becoming unclean, the leper is cleansed. And so Jesus says, now, don't make a big thing out of this. And the reason Jesus doesn't want everybody uh, talking about it is because his hour has not yet come. 
so he's not quite ready to go that public, but he does send him to the priest. Now, that is to satisfy the law, as we saw in Leviticus 14, but it serves another purpose as well, because he would have to go back to the same priest that prescribed him unclean, and he would have to stand in front of that priest, and the priest would now have to proclaim him clean, and the priest would have to deal with the fact that this man seems to have supernaturally been healed of the leprosy. So Jesus is revealing himself not just to uh, the, the leper, not just the people who are standing there, but he's, he, he's revealing himself to the priests, uh, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees as well, with undeniable proof of who he is and what his power is. And so uh, that's all important, and we could make the mistake of thinking that this short paragraph here is about the healing of the leper, and we would miss the result of the healing, uh, which happens in verse 15. Here's the result. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. Now, if you take a look at the parallel passage in Mark chapter 1, uh, you see that uh, it's, the news had spread so far and so quickly that Jesus could no longer enter a town because of the crowds that were following him around. So the result of the leper being healed is the gospel is proclaimed. Verse 16 says that Jesus would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. And we found out last week that um, in spite of all the excitement and all the people that are following, Jesus valued that time alone with the Father, that quiet time to, uh, to pray and to just spend time with his relationship with his Father in heaven. So the leper's life is altered as well. Peter's life's changed. The leper's life is completely transformed. He's redeemed. Instead of Jesus becoming defiled, the leper becomes clean. clean. Uh, and the result is the proclamation of the gospel. And don't miss this because the leper is healed for the sake of the gospel. Well, there's more changes. There's a paralytic in verses 17 through 26. Verse 17 says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with them to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the towels in the midst before Jesus. Now, again, you've got to imagine what's happening here. There's huge crowds. Jesus is in somebody's house, some building. Um, there's a paralytic in town. Everybody knows that this man is paralyzed. Everybody knows what his situation is. Things like this didn't go beyond notice. People maybe had judged him. There were a lot of things going on. And as the crowd presses in to hear what Jesus has to say, the roof opens up. And this pallet begins lowering down into the crowd in front of Jesus Christ. 
this is a moment where everybody would have just stopped. And I'm sure Jesus looked up and watched the pallet coming down. And so as, as this man appears in front of Jesus, uh, Jesus says, and this, this is what happens in verse 20, and when he saw their faith, notice he doesn't say whose faith, was it the man, the, the guy, we, we don't know. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, it was an odd thing for Jesus to say. He's been telling people, be healed. He's been telling people, I can cleanse you. But now, he says, your sins are forgiven. This would have spoken well to the people who gathered there. They would have believed that the man was paralyzed because of some sin he committed or some sin his father and mother committed. But this is a bold statement. And, uh, and, and the Pharisees react according to everything they believe. And ironically, they say something, they're not even totally aware of what they're saying. They're saying only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus responds to all that. Um, and in verse 22, watch this. Uh, when Jesus perceived their thoughts. I just want you to linger on that for a second. Jesus knew what they were thinking. That can be a comfort, and that can be a discomfort. Scripture tells us that Jesus knows what's in the heart of men, which means that he knows what's in their heart, what's in your heart, and what's in my heart. Now, Jesus is going to do something incredible with this knowledge, with this insight that he has. He says, why do you question in your hearts? Then he, then he does this incredible thing. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Now, again, there are a lot of questions that we can ask about this passage. We could talk about whose faith did this. Was it the man's faith? Was it the friend's faith? Whatever, okay. But those discussions completely missed the point. And we've got to bear in mind that when we get to Luke chapter 5, Jesus is establishing his credibility as the Messiah. So the first thing he does to this man is not heal him. The first thing he does is forgive the man's sins. And the healing comes afterwards. And, and it's very deliberate on behalf of Christ. Uh, and, and ultimately we find out it raises these questions with the, uh, the Pharisees. And his answer to the Pharisees is, uh, okay, I'm going to heal him so that you know that I can forgive sins. Now, they've said only God can forgive sins. Jesus says, yeah, that's true. Watch this. <laughs> so, as he reveals more and more about himself, he's revealing more and more about his relationship with his Father in heaven. And the healing of the paralytic occurs not solely for the benefit of the paralytic, although the paralytic does benefit from that, not for the crowd, 
not for the friends, but so that everybody who gathered there would know that Jesus forgives sins. The healing of the paralytic happens for the glory of God. Everybody went home glorifying God. And then what happens in verse 26 is an amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We've seen extraordinary things today. They were aware that they were in a time of change and that something was going on. So Peter's changed. The leper's changed. The paralytic is changed. It's all done for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God. Don't lose that perspective. Don't lose that perspective. So, now we see another change that occurs. And this happens in a man named Levi, 27 through 32. After this, notice there, 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 there's no details on when and where and precise location and any of this. There's just a series of events. Luke is trying to tell us a story. He's trying to build his case for Jesus as Messiah. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, a lot of you are familiar about how the tax collectors fit into the Jewish culture. Uh, they were seen as collaborators. They worked with Rome. Um, they were there to collect the heavy taxes that were being levied uh, by the Roman emperor. Um, and most of them were dishonest. Uh, most of them collected more. I, I mean, it kind of went with the position. You actually had to pay to be a tax collector. But the reason that people would pay to be a tax collector because it was a money generator. So Levi is a tax collector and he's sitting at his booth. And this is how it went. If you owed a tax, you had to go find a tax collector and collect it. Um, if you didn't, they kept very meticulous records. If you didn't, they would come and get you. And if they had to come and get you, the taxes would mysteriously all of a sudden be a lot higher. Uh, so. Levi is this guy, and it's kind of ironic because he's named after the Levitical priesthood who was given care of the temple and care of the people. Eventually, they in integrated into the priesthood, but he's got an incredible heritage just there in his name, and here he is taking advantage of the people that he's called to serve. So Jesus sees this guy sitting there, and he said to him, follow me. And in verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, we don't know why it happened. We don't know what the nuts and bolts are, but this is another incredible sacrifice. Uh, Levi walks away from everything that he knows. He walks away from everything that defines who he is. He walks away from his source of livelihood. He walks away from his relationship with the Romans. Literally, he sacrifices everything. And and here's what happened after he walks away from all that, verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. Levi brings all of his friends in, probably the only people that would come and dine at his house are people of influence, people who were associated with the Romans. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees and scribes know who these people are. They know what everybody thinks of them. The Pharisees and scribes have the same attitude as a collaborator. 
He's betrayed his people. He's sold out to the Romans. So they say, why, why are you sitting with these people? Don't you know they're the scum of the earth? And Jesus answered them in verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Levi's life is changed. His encounter with Jesus leads to a proclamation of the gospel. I mean, it's all right there. Jesus said, I, I, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus is building, laying the building blocks of his ministry, what he's come to do. And so he, he, he proclaims the gospel to those who need it the most, but in the presence of those who need to hear the gospel the most are those who believe they need it the least. And maybe, maybe they're all in the same boat. I mean, we, we need to be careful. I mean, this is, we look at this and we see the self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus is saying, I came for the people that you think are the scum of the world. I came for the people that you think are not worthy of the gospel. I know you think you're worthy of it. And as Jesus' ministry is going to go on, he will question that more and more because they're not, because they're self-centered, because they're self-righteous. You know, today he might say, I came for all those people that you are so offended by. I came for all those people that you think don't belong in church. I think I came for all those people you're trying to keep away from. I came for all those people that are unclean. And my will is to cleanse them. The Levi received new life. And that gives Jesus the opportunity to preach the gospel. So here we have these changes. Uh, the Peter, a leper, a paralytic, and a tax collector. All of them transformed by a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And what we find out in the next passage, 33 through 39, is that everybody who has that personal encounter with Christ is changed in some way. Verse 33, and they, the scribes and Pharisees, said to him, Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, watch this. They're like, hey, the Pharisees and scribes are saying, they're not uh, adhering to the law. Uh, they're not observing the law. And Jesus says, that's okay, they're with me. When they're with me, they, are, they have a right to celebrate. They have a right to enjoy my presence. And so he just said, I came to forgive sins. And now the scribes and Pharisees are saying, oh, but look, they're sinning. And Jesus said, no, there's redemption beyond that. And in the redemption, in those who come to me, those who follow me, there is a cause for celebration. Verse 35, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So, so with him, there's celebration. Without him, there's fasting and mourning. Now, what he's not telling them is that period of fasting and mourning will not be long. It will be temporary. 
And what he's saying overall is things are changing. Look around you. Watch what's happening. Listen to what I'm saying. Watch what I'm doing because everything is changing. Your life is transforming. Now, they don't understand that. The scribes in the Pharisee zone. So he tells them a parable starting in verse 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. But if he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Verse 38, but the new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And then the capper in verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Change is not easy. It requires work. It requires time. And it is so easy to revert to the old ways of doing things. That's what, that's what these few verses are about. Jesus is saying things are changing. The old ways aren't going to work. There's something new happening. But it's so easy to revert to the old ways. But in the new way, in those encounters with Christ, there's new life. There is celebration. Everyone who follows Jesus Christ is transformed. But now we see ju just here in these short passages that that transformation takes some striving. It, it takes some involvement. Some participation is required. It, it requires diligence. It requires a commitment to live in a new way and the deliberation to abandon the old. Our passage is about change. Peter's changed. The leper's changed. Paralytic's changed. Levi's changed. Soon it dawns on us that everybody that has an intimate encounter with Jesus Christ is changed. And, and that means everybody, even those who reject him, they're changed. They go from being in bad shape to being in worse shape. An encounter with Christ will change you. Now, think about this. Peter was not looking for a new life. The leper and the paralytic, totally unable to do anything to help themselves. They couldn't deliver themselves from their situations. Levi was comfortable. He was rich. He's not searching for anything. Everyone in this scenario was accustomed to the way they were living. And Jesus shows up and he has new wineskins with new wine in them. And that, that new wine, hard to taste. The flavor is not palatable. Yet Christ changes them. It changes them all. And they take that change and change the world. So as, as, as we ponder this, we go back to where we started. Are you changing? Can you feel 
transformation going on in and around you? Do you see the new wine? And we need to be honest with each other. That new wine isn't palatable. It's not what we're used to. It would be so easy to just go back to the old wine. Oh, it tastes better. We're used to it. We're accustomed to it. The new wine requires work. It requires diligence. It requires us to adjust our ways. Maybe, maybe like Peter, you're not looking for a change. Maybe like the leper, you feel that you can't change. Maybe, maybe like the paralytic, you're so overwhelmed with your situation that you feel helpless for any change. Or maybe like Levi, you're so comfortable with where you are that you don't really want a change. But if you've had a personal encounter with Christ, he's changing you. He's changing us. Everyone can be changed by the presence of Jesus Christ. And I've got to be honest with you. There may have been no better time in the history of the world than right now. No better opportunity in all of our lives to change than right now. To taste some new wine. To embrace the changes. Now that takes commitment and discipline. And I'm going to tell you something I've told you many times, and it's something that I have to remind myself of frequently. It takes reading our Bibles. It takes praying. It takes putting love into action. And that requires some effort. And right now, right now, we can put love into action with each other, with the community around us. This is our time. This is the time that God has given us. Seize it. Take it. Show the world what the love of God looks like, what the mercy of God looks like, what the grace of God looks like. And we, just like that small group of people in chapter 5 of Luke, brothers and sisters, we can change the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that lay before us. We pray that you would open our eyes, sensitize us to your presence, Father, that your spirit would lead us, Father, and, and take us, even if need be, kicking and dragging into this new world that's being created. Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we confess we can't do this on our own. We can't make this happen. But in your presence, we are transformed. We're transformed from helpless people stuck in our situations to people that are capable of proclaiming your gospel. So we say, here we are, change us. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.